MSW Media. So, Renato, now that three lawyers have pleaded guilty in the Georgia case, are these the nails in the coffin for Trump? Eh, it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, Asha, you know, very interesting to have these guilty pleas of Kenneth Chesbrough uh, and Sidney Powell. There's at least, I mean, obviously we have Jenna Ellis now as well. We're recording this on Tuesday. We have, by the way, received your comments. We're considering how we can try to change our recording schedule to capture instant news events. But nonetheless, we've got a lot to talk about today. I, I will say the one thing that I would kind of, the way I would look at this, and maybe it's different than the way uh, other people are, is to me, this is the end point of the gambit that Kenneth Chesbrough uh, launched that ultimately Sidney Powell grafted onto of having a speedy trial, which I said at the time, as a tactician, I admired uh, trying to rush the DA to the trial. I think it's fair to say it didn't really work. I mean, I think these are reasonably good deals for the attorneys because they don't go to prison, um, but and that's why they took them. But in the end of the day, um, you know, th this is not where they wanted to be, obviously. Yeah. So let's unpack their plea deals. And what you're saying is that Cheeseboro requested the speedy trial in some in a way to call D.A. Fonnie Willis's bluff. Is that what you're sort of saying? Like, OK, then get yourself ready. That's the ideal. The issue, if she's not ready at all, like you've got maximal advantage, you put a lot of leverage on her. Sure. But the the backup plan, though, is at the very least you're putting leverage because the the she does not want to show her cards in a first trial and give Trump mm -hmm. a preview of the evidence. And so, right. plus, you don't want to be at a trial with Trump where Trump's pointing the finger at you. So this is uh, this is still probably a better result than he would have gotten if he just sat around and waited to do have a joint trial with Trump. Right. Also, I'm curious, though, once Sidney Powell pleaded guilty, Cheeseboro was back in a slightly more advantageous position in, in the sense that, you know, he didn't want to be, be going to trial with her. And without her, he was, I think, planning to make the argument that, hey, I just came up with this legal argument, right? Um, I mean, that got shot mm -hmm. down in terms of the memoranda that he was writing and the communications as uh, were going to be admissible and subject to the crime fraud exception for attorney client privilege. So maybe he was seeing this as not a good sign for where it was going to go. But all things considered for the defendants, in some ways, he had maybe the most plausible sort of defense going in, it seems like. I think the lawyers in general were in a reasonably good position compared to some of the other defendants. Because they're able to just say, look, I'm a lawyer. I had ideas. That's what I do. I discuss various ideas with clients. I'm not responsible for all the crazy things that they do uh, to implement them. And by the way, if they thought that I was advising them to commit fraud, they were very mistaken. I mean, that, that that's often the case of how this 
you know, how this, this comes out, you know, Asha, one example in parallel we've drawn in the past is the Sam Bankman free trial that is ongoing, by the way, right now, the general counsel of, of FTX testified and he got a non-prosecution agreement. And what did he say? I had nothing to do with this. I had no idea that they were committing fraud. And that's usually what the attorneys say. So it, it's not crazy that they would do it. The problem for Chesbro, Cheesebro, whatever his name is, is the emails where he's like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't call them fake electors, right? Or that sort of thing. Like some of the, the salty emails that he had that were going to be a problem. Right. So let's unpack the actual uh, deals they got because I they feel really lenient. They're also thin. Yeah, and they're I realize that these are first time offenders and so there's an extent to which their sentencing is they're gonna benefit from that in the sentencing. So Sidney Powell, for example, pled guilty to six misdemeanors and received right. only probation and a fine. I should write an apology letter. Um she you know, to me I was a little bit stunned by that because She's, you know, she was a major player uh, in the Fulton County indictment. She's implicated in this whole scheme to hack into the voting machines in Coffee County um, under this claim that, you know, they were going to find evidence of voter fraud. They illegally, um, you know, tried to get those voting machines um, to, to prove that. That seems like... Hacking seems like a pretty bad thing. And she was she was also elsewhere, of course, very involved in uh, bringing these false claims in, in front of courts. I mean, she's been sanctioned in Michigan for that. Um, right. So I don't know. Like, she seemed – I was surprised that she got off that easy. And especially because I'm curious what you think she has to provide because even if she – was one of these inner circle players who could testify against Trump or others. She's a kook pot and she's lied. I mean, she's been sanctioned for lying. She's actually named in the Dominion voting mm. systems lawsuit. Um, you know, they're suing her for lying and defamation. So I, how valuable of a witness could she possibly be to warrant that kind of a deal? So a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I, these are really two separate issues. So I think the the let's put her cooperation aside because I think that's really important. And that's why I said these these agreements are thin. That I think is a, important to get to as well. But just focusing on the punishment for a second, I was less surprised than you uh, for a couple of reasons. So first of all, one thing all good prosecutors know. And and not, not and there are prosecutors who don't know this, but they often are bad. Okay, I, I face I face sometimes prosecutors where I'm like, what are you doing? Uh, is you have to realize you have to pick your battles and draw kind of a circle around the people you actually want to get, because you learn very quickly. I learned very some tough lessons as a junior prosecutor that you can run yourself ragged on any case trying to chase down everybody. And so when you look at a case like this, if you're a prosecutor, you have to draw a circle around a certain group of people and be like. These are the people we really want to get. And and that, that happens in every case. In that case, I just mentioned you that, that SBF case. They're like, OK, the general counsel, that's going to be too hard. But let's let's just use them on our side. Right. And get and get the people that we, we can get these chief executives here. Jack Smith has done that, at least so thus far in D.C. Right. He's like, I'm going after Trump. OK, let's just we're going to go quickly and we're going to focus on that. And the rest of these people, whatever. 
it may be. I mean, he set it up so he could indict the Sidney Powell's of the world and Rudy Giuliani's of the world. But he, I think, and you and I have discussed this in the past, he wrote out Mark Meadows, and that's even less of a punishment, right? It's it's not a not only does Mark Meadows, you know, let's say you have a misdemeanor here, you're talking about for Powell. Mark Meadows doesn't get charged at all by Smith, which is amazing. That's the best deal ever is to be characterized or described as a witness as opposed to a, a target or subject of an investigation. So, you know, Fonnie Willis took a different approach. She did charge more people, but in the end, she had to make a decision, like in terms of how confident she was and how many resources she had wanted to expend here. Like how hard is she really going to want to do a whole separate trial of Kenneth Chesbrough and Sidney Powell? And what would that achieve? And there'd be downsides because it would give this preview that I talked about earlier. So I think that was definitely part of what was going on is how worth it is it to go after these people? I also think that for a defendant who's a lawyer, getting any conviction is a big deal because uh, it just dramatically changes the rest of their life. And it's like that for doctors as well uh, when I've tried and convicted doctors. But for lawyers, and I did. I did prosecute and convict a, a lawyer. It was very challenging. <laughs> Hardest trials I ever did in my life was convicting a lawyer. And for him, it changed his life, right? Even putting aside the fact that he served some prison time, which, you know, these these people won't, I still think it's Im it's impactful. So I think from my perspective, I wasn't shocked by the punishment. And I, I can see why the DA has bigger fish to fry. So you're saying she just wants to get to the main event. In other words, and Kenneth Cheeseboro and Sidney Powell for her are not the main event. And which brings me to a question. And we'll get to the cooperation in a second. But I'm curious what you think of this. So this trial was going to take like four months. Like she was going to have to present the whole kit and caboodle, right? Right. And so, and that. Because she charged him with Rico She charged right? him with I Rico. Mean, she charged him with all the stuff. She'd have to do the same trial twice. Yes, exactly. And so the other defendants in some ways got a benefit of having their possible trial date pushed back because she was gonna, you know mm -hmm. her office was going to have to present this whole case uh, over four months and then you know then re redo it i guess for all the other defendants so now that these are off that these two are off the table powell and cheeseboro do are we gonna potentially see a fulton county prosecution go first in this whole lineup that's interesting. I, I don't think so. I think the trial date is probably is what it is. I mean, that could always change, but I, I don't think I don't see the judge moving up a trial date. Uh, it's also the most complicated case with the most defendants. I mean, that's what she chose to do. You know, one thing that you're really seeing here is the difference. And I think this will bl help bleed in, into the next the other topic that we're talking about with cooperation is the difference between federal and state prosecutors. And, you know, here you have a state prosecution. It's a little cumbersome, right? It's this all these different counts and all these different defendants. And you and I talked about it did a nice comparative, I think, a number of weeks ago between, let's say, what Jack Smith did on the January 6th case versus what Fonnie Willis did. And I guess from my perspective, um, you know, real this is the sort of trial that's unwieldy. And moving, making any move is just challenging with all these lawyers' calendars and all these defendants' calendars. I just don't, I don't see a judge moving this. And there's a lot of things that can come up between now and then that could potentially even postpone that trial. So I think the the bet is always 
on Fulton County being the last trial. Although I suppose Judge Cannon, um, you know, can throw a wrench in the works in terms of Mar-a-Lago, right? She always can can do something to delay on that end. Yeah, well, that's my thought is that she's helping Trump kick the can down the road right. in that case. And the January 6th case, which we'll talk about in the next segment, may end up with a major legal issue on appeal, which might push it back. So to me, I'm just like, is, if if this isn't going to get moved up, and I, I would think that a judge who had cleared the docket, you know, to be to ha- with the idea that this trial was going to take place may want to be efficient and since that time is kind of already there of course he has to take into account as you said the other lawyer schedules and making sure they have time to prepare i'm I'm actually worried whether any of these are going to go to trial then with ample time before the next election when we've talked about this in the past i said that there was a real chance for the january 6th trial to go before the election because the judge you know, Tanya Chutkin is so motivated to make that happen. The rest of them I never was optimistic on. I suppose the Manhattan case, which we kind of forget about because, like, whatever, okay, compared to some of these other ones. I think any objective person looking at them has to put that in its own category. Um, you know, maybe that, I since it was charged so early in the game. But I, I, otherwise, I yeah, I don't see these happening. The January 6th one is the is the you know possibility uh of and we'll talk about that in a bit about you know when that occurs but i never expected fulton county to go forward before the election i always thought that was uh unrealistic okay well we'll see what happens now tell tell, talk to me about cooperation and what you think because i'm really curious what these people could possibly be giving of value yeah, I mean, look, they are supposedly cooperators, but you know, one thing we talked a moment ago about the difference between federal and state prosecutions. There is a difference between the quality and uh, and the amount of resources that federal uh law enforcement has. It's just the reality of things. State prosecutors, they don't have the luxury of picking and choosing their cases. You know, somebody is assaulted or murdered or raped or anything in Fulton County. Fonnie Willis has to deal with that, uh, whereas federal prosecutors can be like, oh, we'll let we'll let the state handle this. Uh, she, they don't, she doesn't have that luxury of deciding she doesn't want to deal with the case. So she, you know, it's it's they're they're churning through a lot more volume than a federal prosecutor. And I'm sure you could see that from the look at of these cooperation agreements themselves, right? They were pretty thin. There wasn't a lot of detail there. Um, not, you know, it was, it's, they're almost like a checkbox element to a lot of state court criminal proceedings. It's, it's more like going to McDonald's versus going to, uh, you know, Michelin star restaurant. Okay. You know, you're, you're going to something that's more efficient, more, um, fat, you know, it's moving quickly. There's less, um, procedure involved and so on. Not that saying that's constitutionally deficient, but that's just the reality of things. So I, I want to compare it to give some context to what a uh, cooperation deal looks like in a federal case, because I think that that's what a lot of our listeners are thinking of. They're thinking of the cooperators, let's say, in the Mueller investigation or something, right? Where there, 
There's this whole plea agreement spelling out in detail exactly what the person's admitting to, exactly what they're going to say under oath that they did. It's all sworn in front of a judge, and they're essentially affirming that on under oath on the record. And the U.S. Attorney's Office postponed sentencing until after their cooperation. So they have this like sword of Damocles hanging over the person's head. If they're not, if they suddenly change their mind, then they're not going to get that sentence. There's just not that level of robustness to these plea agreements where they said some stuff. Supposedly, I'm told that there's an audio proffer out there somewhere, but, you know, that they could maybe, you know, maybe they chose their words carefully and they'll change them later on. It's just it's harder to see the enforcement mechanism here and the robustness of exactly what they're going to offer. And so I think, you know, there I think it raised some eyebrows when Kenneth Chesbrough's lawyer went on the Katie Fang show on MSNBC and basically was like, yeah, we're still on Team Trump. You know, we're we're all good. And I, I think that, you know, the reality of the situation is, you know, at the end of the day, Cheesebro Chesbro is not going to be on Trump's team. He's not going to be saying things that are helpful to Trump. But they're going to be able to split hairs in a way that um, a cooperator for Jack Smith, like those those gentlemen down in Florida who flipped, uh, are not going to be able to do. So, you know, is this a cause for celebration uh, if you're if you're rooting for Donald Trump's conviction? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it. Look, having people plead guilty to crimes is a significant thing. You know, we just had Jenna Ellis. OK, plead. It's another domino going. I'll just say I personally appreciate that one, partly because I actually followed her on Twitter uh, and would watch her falsehoods. But I also was in a uh, a Twitter spaces with her one time where she, we were doing kind of mini debate and she's like spewing all this falsehoods and, you know. Oh, I debated her many times on back when Chris Cuomo had his show on CNN on Cuomo's court. Oh, God. And oh my gosh, it was insane yeah. because she would just, she would just make up stuff. And, you know, you're not even debating the same set of facts. And, um, uh, yeah, and then she would insult me on Twitter. Yeah, I so, mean she's I'm not she's, there are no there are no tears being shed for her. No. I mean she's somebody me. who sort of like didn't have much legal experience, was totally in over her head, not very talented as a lawyer. It's like very apparent that you know, she's somebody who you couldn't, you know, reputable law firms wouldn't hire her or something. But now, you know, she she was sort of thrust into this role. And given this importance of being the president's lawyer on a major, major case, right, perhaps one of the most important representations in U.S. history and was just totally not up to that and was totally dishonest uh, and willing to say and do anything. So, no, not only no tear shed, like this is the right result here. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, all none of the, all these people are going to get slaps in the wrist. I, I guess what I view it is the 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 intro the the. The interesting takeaway here is going to be what dominoes fall from here. Does this really lead to a Rudy Giuliani packing up his bags? Somebody who had direct communications with Trump, who could say, Trump told me this, Trump told me that, versus Jenna Ellis, who's along for the ride. And that, I think, is a big question. Yeah. And what about the issue of their credibility? I mean, I'm sorry, but can a cheese bro? Maybe. I don't know. You know, he has obviously been dishonest, but he's not to the degree that Sidney Powell has been. 
I mean, she's just actually, like, she makes no sense. You know, she spouted QAnon theories. I'd, I don't know how she's really useful. I mean, she could basically say anything. How would you know whether it's like some hallucination or, you know, lie or <laughs> like the alternate right. reality in which she lives? I, I feel like it would be very easy as a defense lawyer to impeach her. Yeah. I mean, she's basically been willing to say anything. She's uh, a liar. I mean, so is Jen Ellis. Right? These are just like liars, charlatans. Sydney Powell, I actually had some credentials, unlike Ellis, but I mean, she's just a kook, a kook crackpot. You know, as for Chesbro, I think he has much more value. And I did read, I think, somewhere that his, his plea agreement includes some provision that he'll cooperate with Smith. I mean, Ch Chesbro was a real lawyer, and that in some ways makes it more evil, right? Because he has, like, he had, he should have known better. Um, but I think he would potentially come off uh, better. But, you know, it's, look, I mean, yeah. You know, I, I guess from my perspective, if, if you know, for, you know, the, this is always going to be a bad thing for Trump. It's always bad when you have more people saying, yes, I committed crimes who are associated with him or whatever. It's not a good thing for him. But at the end of the day, there are challenges here. And one of them is that he had some attorneys, including some highly credentialed attorneys like John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark and so on, advising him to do illegal things. And that's a problem. That's a challenge that both Smith and Fonnie Willis have to deal with. And I, I, I have always said that. And I, I think that anyone who thinks that that isn't going to be an issue at trial is kidding themselves. Yeah. And they'll be able to speak to the fact that he knew what they were doing was illegal. That's what the cooperation is going to matter for. In other words, I really don't believe that Fonnie Willis is going to put Kenneth Cheesebro up to the stand and he and knowing, you know, that he's going to say, oh, yeah, Trump had no idea or whatever. The most that those people can do is say, I never talked to Trump myself. You know, something like that. Maybe Kenneth Cheesebro never did. I have no idea. I mean, Giuliani certainly did. But maybe a Cheesebro or Kenneth Jenna Ellis never really spoke much to Trump other than hello and goodbye. And they'll be able to say, I don't know, but. You know, I was a criminal and this was a criminal scheme. And, you know, I acknowledge that, which still is not great for Trump. Um, but uh, Trump's going to blame the lawyers regardless of what happened. And I think from a perspective of a Fonnie Willis perspective, getting convictions is a win because it, it vindicates her investigation in prosecution. I mean, the big problem for Fonnie Willis is if if people challenged her and won and she looked like an idiot, uh, like she totally fell yeah. flat on her face. You know, so far she's had three, you know, four defendants, I think it is, plead guilty, right? Because she had one of the electors plead guilty as well. She's got some wins under her belt. And, you know, the, some of the big fish are still yet to come. I mean, things are looking up for the uh, prosecution of Fonnie Willis. Right. And then she ha also has now the advantage of not having previewed her case for the remaining defendants, including Trump. Right. That's huge. And and like I said, I, I view this, like I said, from the very beginning, when we started this conversation, I view this through that lens. Like the prosecutor is put in a situation. There's a gambit that was that was kind of thrown. They threw down the threw the, the gauntlet down uh, to try to have a speedy trial that puts the prosecutor in a position. They have to make a tough choice. It's like a poker hand when you're putting in a lot of chips, you're forcing the other person to make a choice. The prosecution made a choice. They they cut a deal. They got convictions, which is a win for them. Can you know, uh, convictions a win. The defendants they got no prison time. So be it. 
but they're going to be pointing the finger at the others. And you know what? She's sending a message. I'd say to all these other defendants, because she, you know, there's this element where she shot it. It was like a shotgun blast. Like she just, you know, she's, she's, she's charging all these different people. She's sending a message to him. If you come in early, I'm not unreasonable. And, um, if you're Rudy Giuliani and you're staring at a lot of debt and you've already lost your reputation and you don't want to go to prison, I mean, that's got to look quite appealing. Yeah. Though I would hope that she would consider him one of the big fish that she's trying to get. It's always a risk reward trade off. Yes. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of prosecutors, you know, let's say my former office has standards of what they typically give people. So if you cooperate and create a whole new case, let's say you we have United States versus Asha Rangappa and you give them me and I you 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 flip on me and they create a whole separate case, you know, United States versus Mariotti. Well, then you get 50 percent off the low end of the guidelines is your recommendation. And if we're charged together and I flip first on you or you flip first on me, then it's like 33 percent off. That's that's roughly what they do. But offices generally have guidelines. State prosecutors often have way more discretion. And at least in my state, I live in Illinois, um, they can basically essentially they recommend sentences up front and the judge kind of gives tells the parties, yeah, I'll go with that. If you know, if you guys do, you know, do this deal, they basically the defendants have a preview of what the sentence is, whereas in federal court, they do not. And so here, you know, there's a deal that was worked out. They have all this flexibility. They're like, OK, you're going to we're going to recommend a non-custodial sentence. That's huge. I mean, if you're a criminal defense attorney, how do you tell your client not to not to take that when they're charged with all these felonies like Rico and stuff like it's a it's a no brainer. So it's a win win. Um, and, and I think for a Giuliani and you're, if you're Willis, like you want to get ultimately what, what matters is does she can for her is whether she convicts some of the biggest fish there like Trump. If Giuliani is like, I will take the stand and testify that Trump told me X, Y, Z, A, B, C could be an interesting choice for her have to make well we'll see how many more people drop so back in dc (laughs) um jack smith just (laughs) filed um, a response to an argument that trump is making that he has absolute immunity from uh criminal prosecution yeah we talked about unlimited power before this is this is the truest sense of unlimited power right you're the president and you can't be charged with anything it's almost reminds me of that old nixon saying right if the president did it then it's not illegal right that's the the idea right now the argument that trump is making and he's making this as a motion to dismiss he's basically Mm -hmm. saying you can't even do this Uh, And what he's trying to do is extend the reasoning of a 1982 case called Nixon versus Fitzgerald, which says that former presidents can't be held civilly liable for actions that are within the outer perimeter of their presidential authority. Mm -hmm. Um, in other words, they can't be sued for civil damages for that. So sure. uh, if you look at Article 2 of the Constitution, if there's something that is, you know, in that hazy space right. um, that is linked to some type of official duty, 
they can't be sued. And what he is, what Trump is trying to say is that type of immunity should also extend to criminal liability if that, if any of the actions take place in the outer perimeter of presidential authority. And key here is they argue that, again, relying on this other case mm-hmm. in the civil context, you can't look into the motives of what the president was doing. You can only look at sort of this, the, the actions they were taking. And what was, the, what was Trump doing? He was giving speeches and <laughs> sure. he was... Not the content um, of the speeches, of course. Yeah. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, he was communicating with legislators. Uh, he mm-hmm. was, you know, consulting with state officials on public uh, policy issues. And you can't look at why he was doing that. You, it's just that those are, it's a little bit kind of similar to the argument that Mark Meadows made um, in his mm-hmm immunity argument like i was just making phone calls that's what a chief of staff does sure. and uh and this is the best part is that trump's motion um compares his actions related to january 6th especially with the speech making uh to george washington's farewell address oh my and abraham lincoln's gettysburg wow address. i was about to joke the gettysburg address too okay that's great yes they mentioned this and so what he's basically trying to do is, you know, I mean, if you could abstract a president's activity that much without right. looking at anything that is going through their mind or the purpose or the goal and then claim that as a shield from criminal liability, pretty much then Nixon's maxim that if the president does it, it's not illegal becomes a reality. And mm-hmm. This is the response that Jack Smith says, is, is that if you were to accept this theory um, of, crimi- of immunity from criminal liability for a former president, essentially the president would be above the law for anything they did when in office, practically speaking. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not a serious argument. Uh, I mean, if you take – so if you take any defendant's behavior, whether they're the president or not, if you take it at a high level of abstraction, it, it sounds totally innocuous. It's like, oh, yeah, we're just making phone calls you know, to fix prices, but you know, we're, that's like price fixing, price fixing, you know, we're just a bunch of phone calls or whatever. I mean, you could just, you can think, you know, I prosecuted people who would manipulate the financial markets. Oh yeah. We're just trading. You know, we're just, that's all we're doing is just buying and selling things. I mean, it's like, well, yeah. I mean, if you look at it at that level of abstraction. Yeah. Like they're, they're passing secrets to a foreign government and it's like, no, I'm just, you know, consulting with other heads of state. Right. No, it's like the guy in Catch a Predator. I just, I just happen to be at this house. You know what I mean? I'm just showing up and walking. You know what I mean? This is, I'm talking and walking. So yeah, I, I mean, I, so I find some of that silly. I, I will just say, I mean, the ruling, the original ruling, you can understand why Nixon versus Fitzgerald came out that way. Cause you don't want presidents, for example, when they're deciding whether to declare war or, you know, do you, you know, to be worried about the potential civil lawsuit that comes from, from out of that or pardoning someone is the, you know, the person that they go out and kill somebody after they're pardoned. Do you, does that mean you're going to have a civil lawsuit? You don't want presidents, you know, worrying about getting sued all the time for what they're doing as president. I get that. But but of course, what's happened here and the the real pro, one of the challenges for Trump is somebody who's litigated a lot of motions to dismiss in the criminal context is that the pro, the at the motion to dismiss stage, the allegations in the indictment are presumed to be true. 
and the prosecutor drafts the indictment. And it always screws the defendant when they make these motion to dismiss case uh, claims because you ultimately, the prosecutor is saying you did all these dastardly evil things. And the rea- un- uh, unfortunately for Trump, uh, Chutkin's going to look at this and say, look, none of this was, you know, having some big scheme to defraud the United States was not part of your presidential powers. And so, yeah, you could say you were giving speeches, but people talk all the time in, in, in engage in fraud. You know, it's not like FTX. Yes. TV commercials are free speech, but that doesn't mean that like committing fraud via TV commercial, like means that you're suddenly exempt from, you know, making fraud, you know, have, you know, engaging in fraud or the fraud statute. So I, I don't think that she's going to take it very seriously. And I also think that the United States Supreme Court's not going to take it very seriously, despite the makeup of the court. And I understand that Trump appointed three of the justices and so on. But I just I find it hard to believe that the United States Supreme Court is going to really say that essentially any crime committed by the president, as long as you can tie it in some way to his duties, that that is um, immune, you know, that that's going to be immune from prosecution. That seems hard. I 100% think Thomas for sure will buy okay. into that theory. I, I guarantee you. Just because, I mean, and because he just has, as far as I can tell, an unlimited view of presidential mm-hmm. power. I, I have not seen anything from his opinions that have limited sure. um, what the president can do. I suspect that Alito might get on board, too, because he's just cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, too. Well, first of all, let's just be clear here. This is a new question. This is a new legal question because we actually True. haven't tested it. Okay. True. So um, we don't have a lot to go on um, because, you know, the president occupies a very specific place um, and you don't know if criminal laws apply to him until they're until he's charged with them. And we just haven't fortunately had the opportunity to to do that before. Correct. But this theory if it were to be accepted, would basically mean that for sure Mueller's, Mueller's conclusions could never be, I mean, we passed the, the statute of limitations now, but let's assume that they that we hadn't, could never have been um, acted upon. In other words, if you can make this argu- arguably firing, you know, your FBI director certainly falls in some outer perimeter of presidential authority. Right. Yeah. And if you're not allowed to look into the motive behind it, what would make that a criminal act, what would make that obstruction of justice would precisely rest on whether he acted with corrupt intent. What if the president takes a bribe? Is that prosecutable under the Trump theory? In other words, I take a bribe in exchange for giving a pardon. Well, a pardon is an official act. Correct. Getting money is mm-hmm. on its face innocuous. You can't look at my motive for accepting this cash award. All you can look at is the act. Uh, obtain, you know, cashing a check is not illegal in and of itself. And pardon is a presidential power. So is bribery, uh, you know, not prosecutable if it's the president of the United States? Right. You would end up with some very absurd results. And I think... The the question is, is there something about criminal liability that makes it different and less susceptible to abuse than the civil context? And there are many more procedural hurdles that you have to overcome to pursue a criminal case, right? Like you have to get a grand jury to indict. 
Um, you have to meet a higher burden of proof. It's not the same kind of thing as a lawsuit, which, you know, anyone can slap somebody with a lawsuit and basically create, you know, a vexatious claim uh, for the purpose of harassing or just generating some type of bad publicity or something. I mean, it's it's harder to do that in the criminal context. So there are natural protections for a former president in that way, in my opinion. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I do think um, criminal prosecutors have so much power that it is sadly easy for them to abuse that power. But in terms of actually bringing an indictment. Not against the president. Come on. Well, that's, I was, yeah, I was going to say, first Come of all, on. bringing an indictment's a, a, one thing, too. I mean, in other words, there are lots of ways the prosecutors in, in soft ways and grayish ways, you know, not black and white, can use their power and, to, and misuse it and, and abuse it. Um, but yeah, in terms of bringing an indictment, I think that's right. Uh, and there are procedural protections uh, afforded. And I also just think that having that sort of, you can't have that sort of absolute bar that you have in the civil context. Now, in the civil context, basically what they're saying is, I'm sure if if we gave some truth serum to the justices in 1982, they'd say, look, is there are there potential cases where maybe it does make sense uh, for the president to you know have some liability? Maybe. But it's just better to have this rule. So the president's not focused on that. And the president's focused on like lawsuits, but is focused on getting the job done for the United States of America. Um, and it, it could be that if there is some, there could be some tricky set of facts that might change that, right? That might, that might, that where a court could potentially, um, uh, sharpen that analysis. But in the criminal context, it's just anything that is plausibly charged as a, as a crime, indicted as a crime is so, going to be something that's so highly problematic and evil that it's very challenging to see the public policy reason why having a, a president focus on, his or her duties is, uh, you know, means that we shouldn't, uh, w that we should basically exempt them from punishment for committing criminal activity. Yeah. And I think that even under Trump's theory, that the specific charges in this particular case still fail. Even if you were to look at some outer perimeter of Article 2 duties or powers, what are the charges here? One is obstructing Congress. Like, right. obviously, you know, Article 2 authority stops where another branch's authority begins. So if if the charge is that you've basically tried to prevent another branch from fulfilling their function, that is by definition not not in the periphery. It is well beyond the bounds of your your own branch's authority, I would argue. The other thing is that the president's powers are subject to limitations elsewhere in the Constitution, including people's individual rights. And one of the charges is a deprivation of rights. In other words, your Article 2 authority, again, stops where someone else, where an individual's right to vote begins, right? And one of the charges here is that his actions were essentially an attempt to deprive the pe people of their having their vote counted. Um, and I think the fraud case is also the situation is also applicable here. Um, you know, that that gets more into that motive question uh, and is less, I think, obvious. But I don't know if a president was giving a speech. It was like, everybody send me your credit card numbers and passwords. And that was the speech. And then he used that to, like, engage in, like, massive identity theft. I don't think you could then be like, 
Well, he was just giving a speech, and that's what presidents do. Well, that's why I said the, the allegations matter, and that's the <laughs> problem. It's going to be very easy for Chunkin to sort of swat this down because she has to accept the allegations as true. And if you believe the way it's written by Smith, obviously it paints a grim picture on all of these counts, right? It's written by the prosecutor to basically lay out how, you know, his theory of how crime occurred, right? So very, very challenging. You know, yes, the, the, the defense has some explanation for a whole different explanation for everything. And that's fascinating and all, but I I've just been, I've been there on both sides of it. And I'll just say when I was a prosecutor, you know, I went up against a big wall street law firm that had great ideas of all, all these hypothetical people that, you know, the statute would be unco would be uh, unconstitutional as applied to, but they're not this guy who got these very specific allegations that I wrote that painted him out to be very evil. So that the problem is like, that's the, I think that's the, you know, they're not dealing with this hypothetical president on West wing. They're dealing with the guy in this indictment. And that's, that's the problem for this motion. Yes. I'm not worried about Chutkin. I really am worried about the appeal from Chutkin. I, I think undoubtedly she's going to deny the motion to dismiss, but then this will pro this would be subject to appeal. It's a legal issue, right? Obviously, it's a, sure. it's a very threshold legal issue. And I think that that potentially creates delay, especially if it's going to go all the way to the Supreme Court. And while I... Share your general optimism that even the Supreme Court, as it's currently constituted, would not uh, go along with this theory. I really don't know. So wait, I, I'm confused. Are you the sad panda of this episode, Asha? Is that what you're telling me? I I think I I'm 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 cautious, panda. Wow. Okay. I'm circumspect, panda. Yeah. I, 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 okay. I, I hear what you're saying. I'm, I'm going to change my usual role here. I'm pretty optimistic about this. I, I wouldn't be concerned about the DC circuit at all. I think DC circuit on Bonk's going to, uh, going to affirm Chutkin's ruling on this. And then when you go to the Supreme Court, it's just very hard for me to believe Supreme Court justices are going to, are going to endorse anything this maximal. I think you could, I could imagine some sort of split ruling where they're like, well, in certain circumstances, maybe, you know, it does, they provide immunity in certain limited circumstances, but on these facts, yada, 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 something along those lines, maybe, I just don't see them giving him a carte blanche here. Hopefully, maybe on, at least at, on a very narrow level, confined to these charges, as I said, as exceeding the scope of his Article 2 authority. Remember, we, we had an issue with that Lazar subpoena and all of that, right? Where it's like, oh, I have absolute immunity there. And and ultimately, the Supreme Court, it was like a split decision and didn't quite get every, give, they didn't give everything. But at the end of the day, you've got to produce the records to Congress. And I think at the end of the day, I just don't see the United States Supreme Court saying, you know, you, it, you, whether we don't know whether it's true or not, there's still a trial. He's presumed innocent, yada, yada. But he's alleged to have done all these dastardly, heinous things that we're, we think that that's totally fine. And if somebody's charged with that, they have complete and absolute immunity. Like, I, I, I refuse to believe that that's the United States of America we live in right now. So before we go... You and I both love trashy dating shows. True. And I want to know, are you watching The Golden Bachelor? Okay. I, I I know what Bachelor is. I've watched episodes, seasons of The Bachelor. 
Golden Bachelor, that's like that's that's like, it seems it's like, senior bachelor. Oh. Like some old dude? Is the bachelor? <laughs> he actually you know, he he's quite you know, sprightly, I would say. How old is he? Um I don't know, maybe seventy, I think. He looks young. He looks quite young. He's um very active, has a, a youthful glow about him. Um he's actually his story is a little is sad. His uh wife, the love of his life, his high school sweetheart, I believe, um, died of cancer or okay. died of an illness like eight years ago, and he hasn't moved on since then and so his i guess his kids found a way to get him on golden bachelor so he's there and why isn't it silver bachelor wouldn't that make more sense yeah like silver haired right i don't know okay like centrum silver is for the silver okay never mind but i guess it's golden years okay it's like golden girls golden bachelor okay yeah 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 golden girls exactly exactly so basically then you have like the golden girls like as the the women who are competing and they're all in their 70s too they're literally all in their 70s and okay yeah okay i mean this actually had a pickle it seems more wholesome (laughs) than regular bachelor it's actually much more wholesome um yeah because the regular bachelor is like some guy hooking up with four women at the same time and they're all pretending like they haven't they're not like in their mind thinking about the fact that like yeah this guy said all the same stuff to some other woman like yesterday oh, that's all happening though that is still all oh, happening okay the golden bachelor is a play y'all. oh wow he is literally kissing everybody left and right well, kissing okay okay well he got and he was in a hot tub oh. i mean i'm just saying there's some you know action going on but slow um, motion though. and then they had they had like a pickleball tournament and wow. um, it, it got very competitive among the women. And there's been some cattiness. But here's the thing that I can't deal with is that for me, it's one thing to watch a bunch of 20-somethings get rejected and go home because you're like, whatever. Like, you're you're going to be fine. You know, you're going to sure. launch some reality career. You're going to get a lot of dates or whatever. But like all like so many of these women are like similarly like they're widows or this is like the first time they've really liked someone, you know, in years and years or they've been single for 22 years. And I don't know, like it's really for me, it's it's a little sad. Wow. And even cruel to watch them get rejected. Okay. I guess, you know, honestly, the thing that makes me feel sad is it makes me worry that I- I'm getting old because it, does this <laughs> mean that the only <laughs> people that watch The Bachelor are in the old age range? And so if we're a Bachelor fan, like they're they're aging up The Bachelor to match the target audience, which is like you and me. Is that the idea that we can't relate to the 20-somethings anymore? So we're we have the senior Bachelor? It might bachelor. be because you know who they had come back in the last episode was the first Bachelorette, Trista. <gasps> Who oh. was from twenty years ago? By the way, she looks exactly the same. Um, uh, wow. Okay. Good, good for her. <laughs> yeah, she does. She looks very good. But uh, she came back and she was like, "Yeah, I was on The Bachelor twenty years ago," and I was like, "Oh my god." Wow. We're old. We're old. That's for dang sure. Because I remember her. Oh yeah, I remember that first. I remember when he chose the other chick over her, the blonde. Oh, oh, I don't remember the drama. A man was her name, Amanda. 
he she see, Trista got rejected at the end of the first season of The Bachelor. She was the the runner up on the first season of The Bachelor. Oh, so the first season okay. of The Bachelor, there's this other woman okay. who got chosen over her, and it was very sketch. And most people thought Trista should have been the choice, and so then that's how they spawned The Bachelorette, is they took yeah. Trista and they got it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's my recap of. The dating shows. At some point, we should talk about The Apprentice. I don't know if you ever watched that. I did watch we'll The Apprentice. We'll save that for another. I watched The Apprentice. Oh, all including the time. Celebrity Apprentice. So I was. I never watched Celebrity. Oh, Celebrity Apprentice was great. Okay, we'll talk about that next time. M S W Media. <laughs>